So, episode one of Big Shot. Welcome to Big Shot. Welcome Charles to Big Shot. Bronfman. Charles freaking Bronfman is, is our first guest. Wait, so if you don't know Charles Bronfman, Charles Bronfman's father, Sam Bronfman, started Seagram's. Right? I think probably the brand had many liquor brands, but probably the one everybody knows is Crown Royal. Such chutzpah. And then, and then incredible chutzpah. And then Charles basically takes what Sam has built and he builds you know, crazy. He, he, he brings Major League Baseball to Canada. He builds one of the most effective charities on the planet, Birthright. He does, you know, Cadillac Fairview building up all of Canada. Not just that, he creates this like incredible legacy. And he does so with such character and, and with this amazing reputation. And he thinks about, you know, one thing he said, he said, if you make, you give. And That's so right. he, he created this incredible philosophy around giving, but also around building. Didn't he just call you? He called you after the episode oh to God. tell you about something. It's so funny. So we finished with him. We did this episode. We talked to him for over an hour. And then 10 minutes later, I see like my phone's ringing. So I pick it up, say hello. And it's Stephen Bronfman, his son. Stephen's like, hey, my dad wants to talk to you. And I'm like, oh no, like what did we do here? Did we like embarrass him? Did we insult him? Like, like what did we do wrong here? He says, Harley, it's Charles. He's like, thank you for the interview. He says, just so you know, the reason I did the Montreal Expos, the reason I brought baseball to Canada was I wanted to prove to everyone, including my father, that I'm an entrepreneur on my own. Right. And that's one of the big moments, I think, in this interview where he has to walk in to tell his father, who he's been working for, selling whiskey at Seagram's, that he's about to embark on not a small entrepreneurial project, but a monstrous one where his name will be splattered across the paper. And this is not a Sam Bronfman business. This is not an Edgar Bronfman business. This is a Charles Bronfman initiative. And he did it by himself. And, yeah. and, you know, and one thing that I, I want people to know is that you, know, you and I have been talking around this idea of an archival of Jewish entrepreneurial stories, uh, the, the anecdotes, the wisdom, the myths of Jewish entrepreneurship. But it was only until we read this book, The Stilled, which is Charles Bronfman's book, that you and I actually decided, okay, let's do it. And there's, because there's a line in the book right. that basically says that the one thing school does not teach are the histories, the lessons, the stories of, of, of our nation, of our communities, of, of entrepreneurship. And we wanted to use this thing called Big Shot as the vehicle to archive those stories. And so in many ways, it couldn't be more appropriate for us to have Charles as our first guest because he really was the catalyst to creating this entire show. We're going to learn about business, we're going to learn about family, we're going to learn about philanthropy and community and how important that is. I mean, Charles Brofman, here we go. Let's go. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. I didn't keep you real from the jump. David and I have thought about this idea of archiving the stories of Jewish entrepreneurship for a That's long time. That's great. That's great. We, David and I are both entrepreneurs. David built David's Tea. I built a company called Shopify. I, and I drank your tea. It's very good. Well, we have a new tea company. We'll set you up. Yeah, we'll set you up. It's called like Firebelly tea. tea. So we, we love these stories. In fact, in many ways, you have inspired David and I, frankly, to be entrepreneurs and to be ambitious. And so for a long time, we've thought about this idea. What if we archive stories of Jewish entrepreneurship? And we talked about it over dinners and you know, when our, our, our kids were playing together, but we never did anything about it. And then we, we decided to read your book at the same time. So you read Distilled, and in Distilled, you, you, you write this. What was missing from history class, at least in my day, was the word embedded in the word history, the story. We didn't know our stories or myths. We didn't know our heroes or heroines. These are the things that make a successful society, make its people proud and fortify the fabric of a nation. And so this book is the reason we actually started the show. 
And so for you to be our first guest is, is a great honor for us. Thank, thank you for being here. The first thing I, I, I want to start with is part of what we think is important about Jewish entrepreneurship or unique is this idea of chutzpah. And I'm curious, you know, what do you, like, when you hear the word chutzpah, what do you, what do you think about? Chutzpah is uh, sort of daring, but in a not nice way. The chutzpah of that person to think that he can rule the world. Uh, Putin's got a chutzpah in spades <laughs> right, right now. So I don't think of it uh, in that way. Uh, chutzpah in business is another matter. Chutzpah in business is damn good. Damn good. Because if, if you don't have some chutzpah, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that both of you, you weren't the first tea company in the world. No. You weren't the first Shopify company in the world. Certainly was not. And, but you had the guts and the, and the drive. Husband in business, I think, is really drive and not giving a damn about all the, uh, all the uh, procedures and things that are in the textbooks. You know, one thing that um, we want to talk about, you, you, talk, you talked about your, your father telling you around the, the dinner table, Shabbos dinner, or I think it was lunch on Sundays, right? Um, um, he used to tell you that, you know, leave something on the table in any, any deal. Um, when we look at, when, when David and I study the things you've built, one of the things that we notice is that there's always sort of a, a capitalistic, a business bend to it, but there's also a community side to it. And, you know, in the 60s, you very famously brought brought Major League Baseball to Canada. I think it was 67, is that right? Uh, well, our first game was 69. 69. We got the franchise 68. 68. So 1968, you bring Major League Baseball to Canada. Um, you famously, it was just the Expos, but you also brought baseball to Canada. It had never been here before. Well, and minor league had been. Minor league, but never Major League before. And you got a bunch of partners to come in with you. And some of those partners got cold feet. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that, because you had to sort of step in, and that's a story that Dave and I are fascinated with. Well, the whole, I'll tell you the whole story. I was at a YPO meeting in Puerto Rico with my late wife, and uh, I got a call from Jerry Snyder, who was at that time the vice chairman of the executive committee of the city. And he said the Drapo wanted to have, the Drapo, the mayor at the time, wanted to have baseball in Montreal, and blah, 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 blah and he wanted 10 people, a million dollars each, and uh, would, we join. And I said, sure, we join if there was a roof on the stadium because of the weather. He said, of course. And my wife said, a million dollars, just like that. And I said, don't worry, it'll never happen. That's all nonsense. Let's go to the party, so, which we did. I never really thought about it again until one night we were in bed and I hear the 10 o'clock news and I hear them say, well, Here's the news and about baseball in Montreal. Right. And I said, quote, oh shit, we're in the glue. <laughs> and then we had, that was on a Thursday, I think, and we had a uh, partners meeting on Monday at the Windsor Hotel, which was owned by the Westers. On Kill Street. Right. And that's where uh, our Claridge offices are now. Or I should say, Stevens Claridge office used to be mine. Yeah, he, he gave me the privilege, by the way, of having a meeting in his office yesterday. Well, he's very kind. Very kind. Yeah. And he even had me sitting beside him behind the desk. <laughs> very nice. Ooh, major, major, major. <laughs> a real match, yeah. There's uh, a great scene in the book that really resonated with me where, I mean, this, the Expos was really, it wasn't a Bronfman project. This was a Charles Bronfman project. Charles, right. right, not Edgar, not Sam. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where you walk in to tell your father that you're going to be bringing Major League Baseball 
to Canada, and you've been obviously working at Seagram's, but this is a big deal. This is not, I'm going to start you know, another Schmata company. This is, I'm gonna have my name splattered all over the papers and bring something incredibly new uh, to Canada, the fr new frontier of baseball. Talk to us about that moment. What, what were you feeling walking in that well, meeting? Well, let's go back a little bit. My mother, I, I mean, I always wanted to do something for my city, my province, and the country. Yeah. My mother wanted me to be a, a player, not a physical player, uh, in the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. Or they wanted me to be involved with the museum. I didn't like classical music. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a skinny little runt. And, uh, but I decided I was a jock, and there was no way I was going near a museum. I learned on the piano how to play uh, God Save the, I guess, King Man with one finger. And I also learned the William Tell Overture. Why? Because it was the theme song with the Lone Ranger on radio. <laughs> so I was allowed to do that. I allowed myself to do it. So now I always still wanted to do something, and I love sports. Right. My mother used to tell me that at Canadians games, I was more tired than the players at the end of the game. Because <laughs> you were cheering so and jumping oh, up and down. Cheering yeah. up and down. Oh, 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 Cursing. Oh, oh, yeah. Following the puck. Yeah. Richard has the puck. Oh, Doug Harvey's on a... Oh. And You're a commentator. Yeah, right. To myself. Yeah, to yourself. <laughs> and uh, so then this thing came up, and I thought that would be cool. And I said, well, this is my opportunity. I didn't think about being splashed in the newspapers or anything else. I just said, this is an opportunity to do what I always wanted to do, which is something for the city, for the province, and the country. And so I've spent the summer going back and forth between Trappo, Saunier, my partners. It was sort of a ring around the rosy. But you're supposed to be selling whiskey. Well, and I'm supposed to be selling whiskey. Yeah. So then people were dropping out. I'm buying more. And one day I walked into my father's office. Now he used to like reading the Daily News, the New York Daily News, because he particularly liked the comics. He particularly liked uh, Dick Tracy, Joe Palooka. And also he used to like the gossip column run by, uh, or written by Walter Winchell. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, he's got his newspaper in front of his face. And before I walked in, I said, now, if he says anything, no matter what he says, keep your cool. Right. Just keep your cool. Because I've been taking French lessons and he had used, to, and I closed the door. If the door was closed, it was an invitation for him to walk in. All the doors of Seagram were always open. To invite him in. Yeah, so anybody could walk in. Door closed makes it seem suspect. Like, yeah. well, that's the door yeah. closed, yeah. And he liked the looks of this young lady who was teaching to be French. She was damned attractive. And so he used to always wander in. <laughs> and then he would ask me questions uh, during all this time. Well, what are you doing? And I would say, well, there's about this baseball thing. And he said, baseball, hell, you're supposed to be selling whiskey. And on, that was the background of my walking into right. his office. He has the newspaper in front of him. I said, Dad, I have to talk to you. Yes, my son. Well, it's about baseball. <laughs> newspaper goes up in front of him. And I said, well, my sisters and brother should not be invited in by me because I don't see it ever making a profit. Oh, 
So he looked at me. I said, so who's going to pay for it? Now the newspaper did not go up in front of his face. He figures I'm going to hit him for a loan. Right. And I said, so I'll pay for it myself. You got that kind of money? I said, barely, but I can do it. He called Leo Kolber, right. who, as you recall, was our major yes. domo and guru and everything else. I asked him if I had the money, and Leo said, yes, he can do it. And my father said to Leo, you talk him out of this crazy idea. And Leo tried, but we had done some homework. We had studied the finances of some of the ball club, just like you fellows would. And we thought it would be valuable if we could get a decent television contract, which we got. So things looked like it wasn't desperate. Yeah. And we could uh, have a chance. That's right. amazing. And you learned some, some incredible lessons with the Expos. I mean, a couple that stood out for me is you're bringing this player up who I believe is supposed to be uh, uh, you know, a major star on the team, Willis, I believe it was. Willis, Will, Willis, Maury Willis. Right, so Maury Willis comes to town and he's coming from LA and he had some controversy around him and he, of course, underperforms and doesn't work out. And I believe the lesson you took away with it, from it was, if we're gonna bring people to the frontier of baseball, they need to see it as a promotion, not a demotion. Absolutely. Are those, is that something that, how has that shaped your thinking in, in business and philanthropy in general and some of those lessons you learned with the Expos? I, I would say, in philanthropy, I think I used all the knowledge that I picked up in business over the years, including that. I also learned uh, that you can have a plan and you can have something in here, but you better use this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I also learned uh, from business that everything can be measured, everything. The only thing you have to do is set up the standards. Now, for instance, birth rate. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the standard for birth rate? Well, there wasn't any. So we had to invent one. Because it had never been done before. Well, there was no precedent. Kids had gone to Israel, yeah. but very few of them. Yeah. And so now we figure well, if we get 10,000 kids to Israel, it'll be a Machiah. Yeah. Uh, and so we had. Remember, uh, was that the first goal? The original goal was 10,000? Yeah, sure. Something like that? <laughs> yeah. Give or take. Yeah. yeah if, if we could do that, and we figured we'd give it a three-year shot, Michael and, and I. And if it didn't succeed in three years, we'd ask guys to give us money and tell them it's three-year uh, uh, horizon. And if it doesn't work, thank you very much. And we all gave it a try. Yeah. So everything we found was measurable. And I learned that from the Expos, I learned that from, uh, from Seagram, more probably from Seagram than anything else. I want to talk a bit about birthright because you talked about the initial goal being, um, the initial goal of birthright being something around 10,000. After three years. After three years. So David and I ran the numbers, because uh, we're also numbers people, and it turns out you're about at 800,000 kids at this point. From more, than, from more than 60 countries. I want to understand from your perspective, you know, there's a lot of people that could have done this birthright thing. There's a, like, there's a lot of people that, that had more resources or understanding of it, but why did you, as Charles Bronfen, feel like this, this birthright thing was so important? Well, in the first place, you have to understand that we had no idea what we were doing. Mm. Second thing you have to understand is that 
you can afford to lose. So it's not that much of a jump or a gamble because I was, was before uh, the Vivendi disaster, mm -hmm. so I had more money, much more money than I have now. So I could afford to lose, Michael Steinhardt could afford to lose, and in fact what we did was we financed the first trip, the first uh, winter ourselves, and I think it cost us $8 million, or, no, $15 million each. Wow. Which was okay, because we could afford to lose that amount over a period of time. Uh, so that was number one. Number two, in my foundation, we had been in the business of playing with the major uh, religious movements and uh, UJA and so on in trying to get more kids to Israel. Our problem was that we were the only ones who wanted to have more of the religious movements in particular. We're very happy with the profits they were making. Yeah. on these trips because they used the money to fund youth, youth trips in America. But we didn't know that. What, what I find amazing about Birthright is, you talk about this in the book, you like to amplify the network effect of a project and you do one-third private donors, one-third from the community organizations, and one-third government. In the case of Birthright, I mean, it's the ultimate complex sale. You have to not only convince private donors, not only convince the state of Israel, but you've got to get these individual Jewish federations who are, have strong agendas, opinions, their own trips. And we never got them. And how do you think about that? I mean, obviously, birthright's had such a huge impact, but you have all these different parties with different opinions that all want to sway it a certain way. Fundamentally, you just want to connect Jews around the world to Israel. That's all that matters to you. Well, right? the, the, the fundamental thing was, uh, particularly starting with North America, a rabble of Jews came to North America and, like all of us, made out. Right. So now the trick was, how do you make Americans and Canadians and Russians and Australians, etc., how do you make them Jewish? So we figured that we would use Israel as a tool, as a, as a lab, wow. to make these people Jewish. And we would put no pressure on them if they wanted to remain Jewish or become Jewish because they were just secular, fine. If they didn't, that's their loss. And we never put anything on them. We always had education. And the education has changed over the years to keep up with the times and the generations. But uh, it worked. It worked. And the other thing, and this was my insistence, I said, guys, they got to have fun. Right. You don't learn anything if it's rammed into your head. Totally. So have, let everybody party, let them have fun. And the second thing that I insisted on was what's called the Mifkashim, which is the encounter with Israelis. And I've gone on that trip. I've gone on Birthright, and I spent the five days with, right. with the soldiers. And not only from a, again, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm, my father's an immigrant from Eastern Europe. I'm, I'm a secular Jew. I'm not religious. But that birthright trip had such a profound impact on me that it ended up, um, David knows this, but my wife and I have recently built um, the only synagogue in downtown Ottawa now. And the wow. idea for building that synagogue, it's called the Finkelstein Chabad Center, came from birthright. When I came back, I had this deep longing for, to create something. I felt that Canada, our capital is Ottawa, it's a G7 capital. For us not to have a synagogue in downtown 
was, didn't feel right. And even though I'm not a religious Jew, I felt compelled to do so. And so that synagogue is now up and, and the building is up in, in Ottawa. Um, and I did that because of the inspiration that I got through Birthright. And you're right, it wasn't just the trip and it was also, it was very fun, but it was this connection that I received from that. And spending time with the people in the Tzahel and the Jewish army, that, that really did it for me. I want to talk and pick up on something you, you sort of said, which is um, someone said to you, uh, we need the money, we can't find it. You said, go find it. There is something deeply rooted in, 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 in Jewish people this entrepreneurship thing I think is so unique. Um, Dave and I, there's a Mark Twain quote that we sometimes talk about, which is Mark Twain actually points out that as a, as a percentage of the population, the Jewish people are so small, we're tiny. But yet from, a, from an impact perspective, especially in the, in, the, in the area of business and philanthropy, but also business, we are disproportionately impactful. And I'm curious, I mean, uh, we are, you know, David and I are inspired, we're not just blowing smoke, we are inspired by watching you and, and, and your father and also your son. I mean, Stephen is a mentor to me and, and, and to David as well. We really admire uh, three generations of Bronfmans. But there is something unique about the, the Jewish people and how they approach entrepreneurship and business. And I'd be curious to know, um, yeah, in, your, in your, you know, you've been around for nine, nine decades. What do you think is going on here? What, how did this happen? It has to have gone back a hell of a long time. There is something in the DNA. I don't know what it is. One day they'll find out that sets us apart. And, you know, because it's not just in business. You take the legal profession, you right. take the uh, music, Medicine. the conductors, the, the principal players, uh, you take art, you take any discipline you want, there is a disproportionate amount of Jewish stars, shall we call them, and even pe people in the orchestra or in the art world who are Jewish. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's totally unbelievable, and uh, I don't know where it is. Charles. I so mean, if, if I took a look at my son, yeah. and when he was 14, 15, 16, this 17, this is Stephen, and I look at the man today, there is no relationship. They are not the same people. I would have lost a heavy bet that Stephen would turn out to be the way he is. It's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, one of the things, obviously, that, that I think is part of it is this, this, this general or this inherent desire for survival. Shopify is a labor of love to me. It's a big company now. David's Tea was a labor. But we started this because we were interested. We were curious. But our, our parents, our grandparents, your father did not start because he was curious. He did so because he, it was, money. he needed money. It was survival. Right. Yeah. And I think that survival aspect to entrepreneurship is embedded in, 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 in the Jews that start those companies. There's a, a line in the book that I'm dying to talk to you about. It, it really hit me hard where your father writes you a letter on your bar mitzvah and says, I'm going to paraphrase here, something along the lines of, a man's future is determined by his actions. Well, is it to walk amongst kings, but never lose the common touch? What do you think your father would have said about birthright? Well, he would have been thrilled, absolutely thrilled. See, he, he the baseball thing, getting back to that, he became the number one fan of the Montreal Expos. Number one. I remember one, t one time I came downstairs in the morning and he said, what did your goddamn fool manager do last night in the seventh inning? <laughs> they were playing the Dodgers. I said, Dad, I was asleep. What do you mean you were asleep? 
I said, well, you see, I'm selling whiskey for you. I want to be wide awake in the morning so I go to do my job. <laughs> You're not keen. That was one of his favorite expressions. I said, I'm very keen. What did you do? <laughs> so he told me. And he, and why was he such a, a fan of the Expos? Because he found out that his kid had some guts to go and do it. And that's what he admired. He admired people who could go out and be successful and take a chance. Talk a bit about the types of partnerships that you've been through in your life, because whether it's Birthright, Cadillac, yeah. Fairview, the Montreal Expos, Major League Baseball, philanthropy, there is a, there's something to the people you work with that are quite exceptional. Well, in the first place, I am not a loner. I don't do well by myself now, even in sports. For instance, I was a reasonable tennis player, but only in doubles. <laughs> in singles, there'd be people who I could wipe the floor with who would beat me. Mm -hmm because I, I was unsure of myself. But if I had a partner, I knew that partner. I didn't have to depend only on myself. I had somebody to fall back on. And that was true in, in business also, and in philanthropy. Uh, I like to have people who have the skill sets I don't have. And I have the skill sets they don't have. That's a partnership. Yeah. And, and it works. Yeah. And I don't like change. I think once you have the chemistry with somebody, uh, you keep that chemistry. For instance, John McHale was our president of the Expos. Maybe he shouldn't have been all the time, but he was, because I didn't want change. Uh, Jeff Solomon, who is regarded as the number one uh, uh, CEO right. of philanthropy in the United States, just been with me for 25 years. My assistant's been with me for over 20 years. Wow. But yet you're not afraid to make the changes and the chemistry's not there. Gary Carter, who is the you know, well-known hero of the Mets when he won the World Series, I mean, you, you traded him from the Expos, and, and I believe the line is, the only no trade, chemistry. It's the only trade I made. Yeah. But he was an amazing ball player, and you still he still traded him. He was for the Mets. Not for yeah. the Expos. As I, as I said, we can lose as well with Carter as without Carter. This show, this archive that we're trying to create here, we, we hope that it lasts and exists for many more generations. And I'm curious, you know, based on all the things you've done, what would you want to say if you're able to, to sort of, you know, put this into uh, a time capsule and, and in 20 years from now, a group of Jewish entrepreneurs that live anywhere in the world are watching this and they're, they're, they're hearing, if I may, may say so, the iconic Charles Bronfman. What do you want them to sort of think about um, and maybe instill with them? Uh, when, well, when I, I think that there, there are two things. You think about, I always know my dad said this, and I, I just worship him, as may, may have come out in this discussion. He said, first of all, choose your country. See that it has a good economy and, and is fair-minded with socially. Then choose your industry. Make sure your industry is a healthy one and is going ahead. Then choose your company. But first, you must choose those other two. And if you choose right in the company, don't worry about it. You'll succeed. Wow. So I think that's the important thing. The other point is don't be a pig. 
and you are part of a community, you're part of a society. The wonderful thing about making is giving. Give. Help others who can't help themselves. Help others to be as successful as you. Just look after your community, and particularly if you're Jewish. Nobody's going to help the Jews except the Jews. Always remember that. I love that. First pick your country, then pick your industry, then pick your company. And I, I think I, that's, that's, that's incredible. Well, you guys both did it. Yeah, although we, um, we're, 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 we're still trying to figure it out. And, and that's the reason why these conversations are so important to us. It's one thing to make, you know, make a little bit of money and, and build a nice little business, but now to figure out what's next and, and how, do we, how do we give how back, we have more how do we inspire, and how to have more impact. This book is the reason why this entire show got started. It was the, it was the proverbial kick in the butt that we needed because you talked so much about the value of story. Actually, you're, you're, you are guest number one, and, and this entire thing was really built around this idea of more stories and more myths and more, especially this topic of Jewish entrepreneurship, which we think is one of the most interesting topics, but it's not captured anywhere. And to have you, Charles, as our first guest is, is so humbling and so, we're so grateful for this. And just well, want to I'm, I'm delighted to have been here. Uh, God bless you guys. Bless Thank you. you. Yeah. It's, 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 it